Church, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you up front, thank you. Um, you have blessed Katie and I uh, in our young marriage to be a part of a church like this. Um, and so I consider it a pure joy to get up here today and to get to preach the word to you. Um, and so y'all have bore with me these past couple of years. Y'all have gotten to treasure Katie, but you kind of put up with me. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, I know normally y'all get a steak on Sunday, but I told Colton Madden earlier, today you're getting a milkshake. So, um, but let's get at this. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, you may be familiar with this passage. If you're not, um, I hope you get to see the beauty and the grace of God today as we behold who he is in Genesis chapter 22. If you have one of the black Bibles in the pew, Genesis chapter 22 is located on page 29 and 30. Um, and so if you would, just go ahead and turn there. Uh, but before we get into the text, um, you know, I have thought about this. I don't know if y'all have, um, but how much time have you spent in school in your life? A lot. You have probably spent a lot of time in school during your life. Now, how many of y'all actually enjoy school? Do we have any nerds in here? I raise my hand with you. Hands up for the nerds. Now, if you do not like school, raise your hand. Of course. The Lord has promised a remnant, and us who like school, we are the remnant. But as I've thought about how much time I have personally spent in school, my whole life has been spent in school. Now, let me explain this. Basically, you know, obviously, I was two and three. I, didn't, I eventually went to pre-K. But I went to Busy Bear. Y'all don't know what that is. I went to Garrison Pilcher Elementary School. I went to Cross Creek. I went to Thomas County Middle School. Then I went to Thomas County Central High School. Then I took the prestigious dual enrollment courses at the, at the Bainbridge State College. Then I went to the Baptist College of Florida. And now I'm back at the Baptist College of Florida again getting my master's degree. But wait, that's not all. I work at a college, and then when I am not working at a college, you will more than likely find me teaching Sunday school. School has unraveled my whole life, or encaptured my whole life, basically. And if you were to take the average amount of time that a person spends in school, now, I'm just going to say this, from, we're going to set the range here, kindergarten to 12th grade here, because some of us got out right after 12th grade. But if you were to take that average time frame, here is the amount of time that you have spent in school. The average person has spent 2,340 days in school. Now, if that doesn't take your breath away, wait for the hours. You have spent 14,040 hours in school. That's just kindergarten to 12th grade. That is how much time you have spent in school. Now... Why that is important is because what we see in this text here in Genesis 22.1 is that the first line that we get in Genesis 22, this text tells us, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And so I would like to submit to you the subject today when God takes us to school. Because here is the thing. God ultimately tests us in order to exercise our faith and internalize His promises. When God takes us to school, He does so in order to exercise our faith and internalize His promises. No longer are God's promises theoretical. They're no longer just up in the air. We see them actually play out when He tests us. And so, 
If you would join with me, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and uh, I know we're going to go through all 24 verses, so stick with me here. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, hold on, because this is the part where I know everyone is tempted to zone out. We're going to read the genealogy. So, verse 20. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, and Buzz his brother and Camul the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jedlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. 
His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Tibah and Gaham and Tahash and Maka. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we come to you with a simple prayer today. That, Lord, what we know not, we ask that you would teach us. That what we have not, we ask that you would give us. And that what we are not, we ask that you would make us. And we ask this in the name of your Son, and that he would do this by your word, through your Spirit, for his glory. And we pray this for the good of Grace Church and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, that's a long passage. But overall, we see that this is ultimately about God testing Abraham. The word test here, it's also used in the book of Exodus, uh, describing Israel and God there when they tested God. But here we see that God is the one giving the test. And so, it's ultimately like God is kind of finishing the examination of Abraham here. And now I mentioned earlier that I'm, I consider myself a nerd. But there are two things I hate about school. Y'all may have something. Some of y'all may have hated PE. Some of y'all may, may have hated being in class. But there are two things I can't stand about school. Number one is a teacher who does not teach. Can I get an amen? amen. Ooh, y'all's teacher's going to listen to this live stream right here. The second thing is I cannot stand the test day prayer. And I think y'all know what this is. It's that classic line where you're, you're about to walk in the door and you're like, Lord, please help me pass this test, right? Now, if we were to turn that prayer honest, here's how we would honestly pray it. Lord, I know that you know that I know and my teacher knows that I didn't study at all for this test, nor did I listen to a thing she said all semester. So, Lord, I ask that that word osmosis that she taught me a couple weeks ago, Lord, that that would happen right now. And, Lord, I pass this test. Right? Those are the two things I hate about school. I can't stand that somebody comes and asks me to pray for them and they're about to take a test because I know they hadn't studied. But, Here's ultimately why I can't stand those two things. Because they lack one thing, and that is preparation. Teachers who can't teach and don't teach do not prepare. And people who pray that specific prayer, now, now I, I ain't hating on all prayers about passing tests. Hear me out there. But people who pray that specific prayer, they have not prepared. But here is the first thing we see in this text today in verses 1 through 8. That when God takes us to school... He shows us that preparation has a purpose. The first thing we're told here is that, that now it came about after these things. Now, this is a significant statement. It's used often in Genesis. But here, specifically, it is pointing us back to the larger and the immediate context in which Abraham himself was tested. Let me give you the larger context of Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, we see his calling, and we see also an incident with Sarah in which he, po he makes Sarah pose as his sister in order to save his own skin in Egypt. Then, in Genesis 13 and 14, we see that Abraham and Lot, they have so many possessions that they have to separate. Their possessions are too great, which is followed by Abraham having to save Lot. Then... Immediately following that, in Genesis 15, the Lord gives Abraham a promise. And you have to remember what just happened. Abraham just saved Lot from warring kings. And this is the first thing that God tells him. Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. 
Subsequently, we see Abraham is then justified. He is declared righteous before God based on God's grace through faith. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 15. Then, immediately following that, the episode that we are given is Hagar and Ishmael. The chapter before, Abraham is given a reiteration of the promises of God. And the very next thing we're told that Abraham does is he repeats his sin from back in Genesis chapter 12. Then in 17, we see that the covenant that God gave Abraham is established. We see that the covenant, those promises that God gave to Abraham is established. And then in the following chapters of Genesis 18, 19, and 20, Isaac is ultimately promised in Genesis 18. The promised son is going to come. Then in 19, we see God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in which Abraham and his family are spared. And then Genesis 20 leaves us off with the second Sarah incident ultimately. But what we see here is you have to think about the time frame in which this happened in Abraham's life. A lot of times we ourselves want God to work fast. We want him to work on our timeline. But he did not do that in Abraham's life. God worked on his own timeline. The, those events that I just gave you right there happened over a 25-year span. And so a lot of times we think we are ready for the big moment that God has prepared us for. But we have not given him the time that he wants to use to work in our lives and prepare us for the purpose that he has us set out for. But that's what we see here in Abraham's life. Over 25 years, God has purposely prepared him. And so what we see in this one line right here is that our God purposefully prepares us for when he will test us. Our God purposefully prepares us for when he tests us. And that is a great comfort for us as believers, that our God will not waste a single moment of the time that he uses to prepare us for his purposes. Our God teaches before he tests, and he equips before he examines. That is a great comfort. Our God purposefully prepares us. And just think about this. Think about the time when God called you, when he called you out, and then he justified you. Aren't you glad that God didn't test you before that? Yeah. Fail. But ultimately what we see here is that we do not have to fear the day when God comes to test us. Because there is a greater purpose that he has in mind for us. Our God te- teaches before he tests. He equips before he examines. And so this, te- this text of scripture teaches us a few things, three specific things about how God prepares us. He prepares us, number one, based on prior instructions. If you put your eyes on this text here, in, starting in verses 2 and 3, we see um, a striking similarity here with Genesis 12, 1 through 4. And in Genesis 22, verses 2 and 3, this is how it reads. The Lord comes and speaks to Abraham, and he says, Take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And then in verse 3 it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. Now, if you want to flip back with me, Genesis 12 real quick, I'm going to go and read that. But what we see God doing here 
is something spectacular, actually. He uses his prior instruction. He is helping Abraham recall what he has already told him. Genesis 12, I'm not going to read all four verses, but I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 4. Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And then in verse 4, So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Now here is the similarity between Genesis 12, 1 through 4, and Genesis 22, verses 2 through 3. God moves in His Word to His people from general to specific. Notice, in Genesis 12, He is to leave His country. In Genesis 22, He says, Take now your son. You've got to remember, Abraham has two sons. Isaac and Ishmael. Then we're told that Abraham is to leave his father's or his descendants. And then he says in Genesis 22:2, "Take now your only son." It's getting more specific here. And then in Genesis 12, we see that he is to leave his father's household. Genesis 22:2, "The son whom you love." Now that doesn't mean Abraham didn't love Ishmael but there is a particular love that he had for Isaac as the son of promise. And then, in verse 3, we see that Abraham rose early in the morning and he sets out, just like he did back in Genesis 12, 1-4. We see that he gets a word from the Lord, and he acts on the basis of that prior instruction. And so, we see ultimately that God moves from general to specific in these verses. And so, what this often looks like in our lives, just just one example. We all know that the Bible talks about how the love of money is the root of all evil, right? The love of money. But yet, that scripture confronts us with the general principle. The love of money is the root of all evil. And the next thing we do the next week, we pick up five shifts and miss church. We miss getting discipled. God gives us His Word, and then His Word intersects our life. And then we go, no thanks, God. I know you gave me that prior instruction, but I'm going to do this on my own. Another way this works, God gives us the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And the way this works positively, I mean, you can probably ask Jim and Mandy Wells this. Ask them how many sermons, how many Sunday school lessons, how many times someone cited Matthew 28, 16 to 20 to them before God specifically showed them how to obey that command. And now they are in Peru. And so you see God's prior instruction, it takes us from the general to the specific. And ultimately, when God prepares us, Our obedience is based on His prior instruction. And when we don't obey based on prior instruction, we we see that things go sideways really quick. Take, for example, Genesis 16, where Abraham listens to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of the Lord. And if you were to think that that just has an effect on Ishmael, now that Ishmael is sent out into the wilderness... Think of Ishmael's descendants. 
who were the ones who strived against the Israelites for generations. So our not acting on the Lord's prior instructions has ramifications. And we see two things about this prior instruction. Number one, it gives revelation. This prior instruction of God gives revelation. In Genesis 12, we see that beautiful promise that God gave to Abraham in which God shows his grace, not based on anything that Abraham himself does. The Lord promises that he will do it. And then we see these reiteration of promises over and over and over again throughout the Abraham narrative. Two examples, Genesis 13, 16 and Genesis 15, 5, in which Abraham is told that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and as vast as the dust that is on the earth. And those promises are given within the context that Sarah is barren and she can't bear any children. Abraham is shown the character of God in that he is to depend on God's ability and not his own. And then in Genesis 19, we see this episode of Sodom and Gomorrah in which God's holiness, his justice, and his righteousness is put on display. And so we see that ultimately... Just as with Abraham, our obedience must be based on God's word because it clarifies his character for us and it shows us what his purposes are. But not only do his prior instructions give us revelation, they also grant preservation. Now notice with me, who is the one that is to be offered up as the burnt offering? It is Isaac. Now if you are, and I'm about to experience this as a parent, But my son's life is just like my life. I will be willing to lay down my life for my own kid. And so we know what has gone on with Abraham here before, where he has sought to preserve his own life based on his own ability. But what we see here ultimately is when Abraham takes his son and they set out for the mountains of Moriah, is that he is ultimately trusting the Lord to preserve him and his family. And we're going to get into that a little bit later on the specifics of that. But there's two things here on prior instruction. Prior instruction gives us revelation, and then God's word also grants us preservation. And we honestly have to ask ourselves, do we truly believe that God is the one who keeps us and preserves us, or will we attempt to take things into our own hands? But not only do we see this prior instruction, we see that God's preparation is also built on the previous implementation of promises. We just touched on this, but Abraham is told to take his son, his only son whom he loves, Isaac. And in the immediate context of Genesis 21, the chapter just preceding this, Isaac fulfilled the promise of Genesis 18. But what we see here, when God implements this promise in Genesis 21, and then he asks for Abraham Abraham to give up Isaac, we see that Abraham does not complain. He does not grumble. Instead, he looks at his son Isaac, and he remembers the faithfulness of God. He considers that if God is able to bring forth Isaac from Sarah, God is able to do much more. Abraham has also seen promises implemented. I already mentioned it in places like Genesis chapter 15 where he had just 
left this conflict with these kings, and then the first thing that, the God, that God tells him is that I will be your shield, your very great reward, which is a further clarification of what God said back in Genesis 12, 3, when he told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. God had implemented his promises throughout these 25 years of preparation. But Grace Church, can't we remember God's faithfulness as well? How he has implemented his promises and their good effects time after time for us as a church. I mean, just consider a few things. Consider how we have made it our aim to proclaim Christ among the nations. And we get to support these missionaries that are represented by this flag. And we have seen him be faithful to that and bring forth fruit. We've also seen how he has executed his word. It has not returned void. As as we've sought to proclaim Christ, the gates of hell have not prevailed against us. We have seen him implement his promises over and over again. And then we've prayed as a church, Luke 10.2 to the Lord of the harvest, that He would continue to send more laborers out into the harvest, for the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and we have reaped much, even if that came at great cost to us. Because here is the ultimate comfort. And Jesus gives us this comfort in Mark 10, 28-31. He promises that anyone who leaves house or father or mother or brother or sister or farm, or anything for his sake and the gospel's sake. He will give much more in this age and in the age to come. We have seen his faithfulness to his promises over and over again. But we see that not only is his preparation based on prior instructions, it's also, and not only is it built on the previous implementation of promises, it also brings with it a worshipful orientation. Look with me in... Verse 5 of this chapter. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship. We will worship. You see, this doesn't come from the mouth of the teacher. This confession comes from the mouth of the student. God did not have to tell Abraham the purpose behind the test. Abraham sees the purpose in the test. The purpose in the test is to worship the one who is worthy. And that's what Abraham does in this passage of Scripture. The ultimate question before Abraham, would he worship or would he withhold from God? Would he worship the creature over the creator? Would he worship the gift over the giver? That is the question that is laid before Abraham. And the question comes before each of us today, is God worthy of my all in all? This this word worship, as you may know, it means to bow down and go prostrate before someone such as a king in honor of him. Is God worthy of you bowing down before him and you ascribing to him all the glory, all the honor, all the praise that is due to Him, even if that means giving up your own life. Is He worthy of your all in all? If our answer is yes, then there are two gifts of God's grace that we 
can count on. Gift number one, a worshipful orientation gives hope. A worshipful orientation gives hope. Not only does Abraham tell his servants that he is going to go to the mountain to worship, did you notice the end of that phrase? We will worship and return to you. The only two people going up on that mountain are Abraham and Isaac. And one of them is to be the burnt offering. Yet Abraham tells these servants, both of us will return. This is a beautiful thing. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says in verses 16 through 19 that Abraham considered that God was able to raise someone from the dead. And ultimately what we see here is that a worshipful orientation is accompanied by a hopeful disposition that believes God is able to do the previously unprecedented. Let me say that again. A worshipful orientation is accompanied by a hopeful disposition that believes God is able to do the previously unprecedented. I must give the credit to my wife on this because as we were examining this passage of Scripture this week, she reminded me at this point in Scripture there had not been a resurrection. Not a singular one. We see a resurrection take place in a latter part of the Old Testament. But nothing has occurred up to this point. And so what we ultimately see here is that Abraham believes, hopefully, and hopefully is not just a whimsical word. It is a confident assurance in the ability and the promises of God. If God said, this is the one through whom my descendants are going to be named, this is him. And so ultimately we see Abraham entrust to the Lord and say, Lord, even if I have to take his life, you are able to raise him from the dead. God is able to do the previously unprecedented. But not only does this worshipful orientation give hope, it grants help. A worshipful orientation grants help. When we give all to the Lord, He Himself will take the responsibility of providing. As we see in verse 8, upon Isaac's questioning of Abraham, Dad, where's the the lamb? I know there's got to be a lamb somewhere. Where is it? And Abraham says to his son, Son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. See, Abraham knew that if Isaac was to be spared, then it would come from God providing, not him. Abraham could not be the source of his son's life. Abraham himself was teaching his son in this moment to to trust into the sufficiency of God Himself. And ultimately, the true worship of God leads us to behold and rely on His sufficiency and not our own. This is the true profession of every single Christian. The Lord Himself will provide. Whatever He requires, whatever He commands me, He Himself will provide the necessary means to accomplish what He Himself has commanded. God Himself will provide. And as we begin to behold Him, we begin to come to terms with our own insufficiency and His sufficiency. God is sufficient in and of Himself. He does not need us. God does not need our best effort. 
He requires our faith of us that we trust in His sufficiency. And it is only then that we can work in the strength of His grace, in the strength of His power, which is able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And so we see, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, that when God takes us to school, He shows us that preparation has a purpose. And then in verses 9 through 14, He shows us that provision is personal. Preparation has a purpose. Provision is personal. I don't know what you were doing on January 2nd, 2023. I believe I was at Caleb McVeigh's house eventually because Caleb and I were probably hanging out watching some uh, Monday night football. But on January 2nd, 2023, as you might, may know, uh, someone named Damar Hamlin was playing for the Buffalo Bills at the time. And we see that ultimately in this scene that we're given on the TV is that T. Higgins, a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals, he catches a 13-yard pass and DeMar Hamlin hits him. DeMar gets up and immediately collapses on the ground with a thud. But what we see and what you may not know is a man whose name is Denny Kellington administered life-saving CPR for DeMar Hamlin. And this past week, the whole Buffalo Bills training staff received an award at the ESPYs, the Pat Tillman Service Award um, for service. And so what we ultimately saw there is that provision is personal. It wasn't a machine that saved DeMar Hamlin's life. It was the intervention of Denny Killington who saved DeMar Hamlin's life. A split second mattered between DeMar Hamlin being able to be resuscitated and him losing his life. And we are given a similar scene here in verses 9 through 14. Because in verse 9 we're told, When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham makes all these preparations. He has his hand up and he's ready to strike his son. But we get in verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Provision is personal. Seconds matter. And so the first thing that ultimately we see about these verses, in verses 9 through 14, the first thing that we see is that we live because of substitution. In verse 13, immediately following the intervention of the angel of the Lord, we are told that Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. This is one of the first times in the Scriptures, that we see the principle, the theme of substitutionary atonement coming to light, in which a sinless, perfect, spotless, unblemished one is put in the place and sacrificed for one who is undeserving. We see this substitutionary atonement shown in Genesis 3.21 by the Lord Himself when He was the first one who before Adam and Eve slayed an animal before them and clothed them with its skin. And then we also see this in the book of Exodus 
wherein the Passover, an unblemished, spotless lamb, is slain, and its blood is put over the doorposts. And then we also see this all throughout the book of Leviticus, where we see that these offerings were slain for these people to cover their sins. But ultimately, the book of Hebrews tells us this, that while these examples were not in effect, were not meaningless, they are not effective because the author of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats do not have the power to take away sin. So this scene that we are given in Genesis 22:13 must point forward to an all-sufficient sacrifice that is to come. And so there are three pictures here that we see. Ultimately, in verses 9 through 14, the first thing we see is the Father's action. If you'll notice with me in verses 9 through 10, we see Abraham is very active in this whole endeavor. He is building the altar. He is arranging the wood. He is the one who bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. And as we know, one of the most famous famous verses in all of Scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus, referring to himself in John's gospel, constantly talks how he is the one sent by the Father to do the Father's will. And ultimately, through Abraham, we see a God who plans, who acts, and who gives his only begotten Son. But not only do we see the Father's action in verses 9 and 10, but we see the Son's humiliation. In verses 6 and 9, we see some incredible things that while we don't really see Isaac speaking that much in this episode, his silence actually tells us a lot. In verse 6, we are told that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And then, in verse 9, we see that Isaac himself is bound. And now there's, a, there's some controversy around this passage. Uh, you, you may be well aware of that just reading it on the surface. Uh, but there are a lot of critical scholars who would look back on this and see an Old Testament God who is vengeful, who is bloodthirsty, who is doing something cruel to Abraham, and then they take that same principle and they apply it to the cross of Christ, in which they say that Jesus dying on the cross is an example of divine child abuse. So, let me just do a, a few things textually here to show you why that is, while it may be critical, it is not scholarly. In verse 5, and then um, again in verse 12, Isaac is called the lad. Isaac is no child here. This same word used here, lad, is also used in Genesis 37.2 in describing Joseph himself, who was 17 years old at the time. And then in Joshua 6.23, the same term is used to describe the spies who went into Jericho. Men who were old enough to go and do a rescue operation for Rahab and her family. Isaac is no baby. Isaac is no toddler. Isaac was not in Grace Kids. 
Isaac is a young man in this passage. And so we're told in verse 6 that the wood was laid on Isaac, his son. And you have to think about this. We can't forget about the donkey. You know, it's easy to read this passage and forget about the donkey here. Right? I was driving back from Dothan yesterday, and I saw two donkeys having a great time through a cow passage. Y'all don't need to know that. But anyway, I saw two donkeys yesterday out there protecting the cows. Anyway, y'all know what donkeys are used for. They are beasts of burden. And if you were to go back in verse 3, we see Abraham is splitting the wood for the burnt offering. And so more than likely, we see that the amount of wood required for this offering was so great that Abraham brought his beast of burden in order to get it to Moriah. And then we see in verse 6, Isaac has the wood laid on him. The very wood that would serve the purpose of killing him ultimately. Of offering him up as a burnt offering. Isaac takes the instrument of his death up the mountain. But not only do we see that, we see in verse 9 that Isaac lays down his life. This may be insensitive, but um, is a 100-year-old going to beat up a 25-year-old? Is a 100-year-old going to catch a 25-year-old in a race? I'm not trying to be insensitive. Yes or no? No. So, if, if Isaac did not want to be bound by his well over 100-year-old father, do you think he's going to let his father bind him? He's already asked him where the lamb is. But what we see here is ultimately a picture of the cross of Christ himself. Jesus talks about this in John 10, where he says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. If that's not sufficient enough, the author of Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 7, that the suffering servant would be like a lamb that is silent before his shearers. And we see that ultimately in Matthew 27 when Jesus is accused by the religious leaders and the governing authorities ask him for a response. He stays silent. You see, silence communicates a lot. Jesus is sinless, yet he lays down his life willingly for you and I. Grace Church, delight in that truth that Christ laid down His life for you. Willingly. He did it for you. That's not the only two beauties we see in this passage. We see also not only the Father's action and the Son's humiliation, we see their complete union in this act. In verses 6 and 8, we are told twice. It brackets this conversation that Abraham and Isaac had. And we're told, so the two of them walked on Together. Togetherness, unity, complete inseparability, undivided, unbroken union between the Father and the Son is what we see in the sacrifice that's given in verses 9 through 14. And the great Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says this about that one phrase. He says, The two of them walked on together. 
Twice we are told this. For this incident is a type of the Father going with the Son, and the Son going with the Father up to the great sacrifice on Calvary. It was not Christ alone who willingly died, or the Father alone who gave His Son. But they went, both of them, together. Complete inseparability. Our triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, walked on together. And what we get the joy of looking back at, this passage pointed forward to. For, for generations upon generations, the nation of Israel got to look back on this binding and not only see an example of the suffering that they would endure at times, but they also saw a picture of who the Christ would be. And we get the joy of looking back and seeing how our God did this for us on the cross. But not only do we see this, the third thing we see in this text in verse 14 is we hear because of propagation. I'm sorry, the second thing we see in this text, we hear because of propagation. In verse 14, ultimately, we are told that Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. And then it says this, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. There are two significant places in this text where we see basically an, an authorial note in this passage. It's giving us a bit of information that Abraham himself did not have. The first one is in verse 1. Abraham did not know in the sense that God was testing him. Now we see here in verse 13 that the result of Abraham, I mean, uh, verse 14, the result of Abraham calling this place the Lord will provide resulted in generations of his descendants looking back on the character and the purposes and the work of God. And you know, uh, we have a propensity to name things. Um, I mean, it's just kind of a common thing. It's a natural thing. Um, And as Katie and I are getting close to having our first baby boy, We've been thinking about names. We don't need any more suggestions. I'll just put that out there. We've got our little list, and uh, if I say any of them today and I slip up and say one of them, you can't use it. We're covenanted together as a church. You can't use the names we have on our list. But I will tell you there is one name that we will not be using, and that is Duke. That's why we're not using it, because y'all laughed. But Duke will not be on our baby list anymore because Katie didn't want our son being called Dukey his whole life. (laughs) But there are two names, and I promised my wife that I would not say them, but there are two names that we have narrowed it down to. One is of great theological significance. The other just sounds good and it goes with the middle name a little bit better, you know? So that's kind of where we are at. But a name matters because it is how someone or something will be remembered. Abraham named this place so that future generations would know the Lord's grace and power that he had put on display at Mount Moriah. You know, personally, we have been thinking about how we are going to pass on the faith to the next generation of dollars. And when our children look back at our lives, will they be reminded of God's grace and power, 
or will they think of how great Katie and I were? We would rather have the former. And you know, we were, um, we were at uh, the Grace Group gathering this week with Malthus and his family, and Malthus said something there that I thought was so timely for us as a church. He said this, The gospel can be lost in one generation. We can be Christian, our children not. Our children can be Christians, and their children not. Grace Church, we have something so precious. We have the good news of the gospel. And we must pass it down to the next generation so that they themselves can say, the Lord has provided. And so not only in this passage do we see that preparation has a purpose. And not only do we see that provision is personal, but we see thirdly, that when God takes us to school, He shows us that promises will produce. And I know you were thinking as I was reading this passage earlier, what in the world does a genealogy have to do with the binding of Isaac? Well, it has to do a lot with the binding of Isaac, actually. And, and this is displayed here in these verses. These verses contain ultimately a question that brings great tension to this story. If you're to notice in verses 15 through 19, the Lord gives Abraham divine promises that are sworn by an oath. And then in the immediately preceding verses, or preceding verses, we see in verses 20 through 24 that ultimately Nahor, his brother, who does not have the promises of God, has more descendants than Abraham himself does. So the natural question that arises out of this is why do we see this pagan guy, who's probably back in Ur of the Chaldeans, why do we see his family prospering when Abraham is the one who has been given the promises of God? That his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and as, um, as, as vast as the dust of the earth. Why does Nahor have more descendants than Abraham? And this goes back to the age-old question, why do we see the righteous suffering while the wicked are prospering? Why does it seem as if those who have been given the promises of God seem to be on the losing side? And these verses give us at least two principles to hang on to, regardless of how successful or how bleak our current situation may look. The first one is that His promises will produce because He has guaranteed success. He has guaranteed success. If you were to look in verses 16 through 19, we see that ultimately God tells him that he will greatly bless him. He will greatly multiply Abraham's seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And he tells him that your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then he finally tells him the fourth promise, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But all four of these promises begin under the Lord's declaration in verse 16. Because God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. You see, these promises of God are ultimately sealed with the Lord's oath Himself. The author of Hebrews tells us about these verses in Hebrews 6, 16-18. He says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. 
In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Our God has guaranteed the success of His promises. Because the author of Hebrews tells us that by two unchangeable things in which it, God Himself does not change. He is immutable. He will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we also see that God does not lie. He does not change and He does not lie. Our God will never, never, never go back on what He has promised in His Word. So Grace Church, our God is unchanging. And He will not go back on His Word. He is faithful even when we are not. Our unfaithfulness does not nullify the promises of our unchanging God. But not only has He guaranteed success, we see that His promises will produce despite the apparent opposition. In verses 20 through 24, we are ultimately given this genealogy of Abraham's brother. And there's a problem here, as I stated. His brother has more descendants than him. And we see examples of this all the time in the Scriptures, of where it seems that there is a problem that God has to deal with. And instead of getting rid of the problem, God takes the problem and provides the solution through it. If you don't believe me, the end of Genesis, we get this great narrative of the life of Joseph in which he is sold into slavery in Egypt. And we see that Joseph ultimately comes to this position of power and authority in Egypt where his brothers and his father come to him during a drought and they are able to be saved by that because Joseph was sent into Egypt by the Lord. And, the Lord, and Joseph ultimately tells his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good so that many will be saved. And if that's not good enough, we ultimately see this in the cross of Christ. Where in Jesus' humiliation, in His crucifixion, He is actually exalted as King over all. See, our God often provides the solution to the problem through the problem itself. And we see this in this text right here. In verse 23, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Rebekah, as you will see in the following two chapters of Genesis, becomes the wife of Isaac. And from Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the twelve tribes, there comes a number out of Egypt too vast to describe the descendants who are to be as numerous as the stars and as vast as the dust on the earth have arrived. God provided the solution through the problem. But that's not where that ends. Because in verse 18 of Genesis 22, and we'll close with this, we see that God gives Abraham a wonderful promise. And it's similar to what he tells him back in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that in him all the families of the earth 
will be blessed. And then here in Genesis 22:18, the Lord reminds him, in your seed. And that seed is singular. Seed there in verse 18 is not plural, as referring to many, but to one. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3. And he actually talks about this promise in light of Abraham's justification. And he says in Galatians 3 verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and me, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And so Grace Church, just as the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and to Isaac on that mountain, we have the privilege of proclaiming this good news as we leave here today. And so there are two responses that this text naturally brings to us. The first one, as we look back at the the substitutionary atonement of Christ in which He laid down His life for sinners. There is one response to that. And Jesus calls sinners to come to Him, to repent of their sin and believe in Him. And then the second response is that we, by faith, just like Abraham the believer, go forth and preach this gospel to all the nations of the earth, to all the families of the earth, so that they can experience the grace of God. So this is what happens when God takes us to school. Grace Church, would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your great grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that when you test us, you exercise our faith in you and those promises that you have given us in your word are internalized. And so, Father, help us to see how you are preparing us even now for what you have called us to as a church. Help us to see the personal provision that you have given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And help us to hold on to the truth that your promises will produce because you are unchanging and you do not lie. And so, Father, we glorify your name today. May you be magnified as we sing to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.